Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body-inclusive non-diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of The Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body-inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I had such a fun conversation with Rachel Larkey, who is a dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor from New York. Rachel is a very clever person, and she's just had a paper literally published in the Journal of Critical Dietetics entitled Intuitive Eating and Health at Every Size in Community Settings, Dietitians' Perceptions of Practice Barriers. Ooh, this is so interesting. So this is a paper that discusses dietitians' reports of the specific perceived barriers to the use of intuitive eating and haze and identifies three key aspects that the dietitians uh, perceive as barriers. This conversation really illuminates so much for me in terms of um, how we perceive diet culture and messaging and legislative and administration policies and systemic issues. And then also coming down to personal beliefs and how our own personal beliefs, as well as those of our clients and our colleagues and um, other healthcare workers, really can impact on um, our capacity to offer weight-inclusive care. So much as we might want to, especially in community settings, which let's bear in mind is different to clinical settings and is different, again, to private practice settings, um, you know, there can be lots of things that, that get in the way. And I think that being able to identify these, acknowledge them, and then work our way through them offers us such a powerful way moving forward. So I want to tell you a little bit about Rachel. So Rachel Larkey is, as I mentioned, a dietitian and certified intuitive eating counsellor. She currently works full-time at a federally qualified healthcare centre in New York and sees a limited amount of private clients virtually. She's dedicated to exploring ways to adapt haze-based care and end intuitive eating to the needs of public health and other communities. So this was such a great conversation. I learned so much and I really hope you enjoy it too. What it really does is illuminates um, not only the way forward for us uh, collectively as dietitians, but also specifically working with underserved communities and people for whom traditional approaches, including intuitive eating, might not exactly be suitable and ways in which we can adapt and really listen to what our clients and patients need, as well as other colleagues who have lived experiences and really elevate the voices of others. So thank you so much, Rachel, for coming on. It was wonderful to speak with you. And I really look forward to following where your research takes everybody from here. So if you're looking for more podcast episodes or any kind of uh, training or supervision um, or a wonderful community of other like-minded, weight-inclusive and body-inclusive dietitians, then look no further than the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and thank you so much for being not only here but also part of this community it's an incredible place where like-minded dietitians can come together to learn to grow 
to support each other and to really um, expand and deepen our understanding of what it means to be a healthcare professional in weight-inclusive practice. So I hope you're enjoying not only this community, but you'll also enjoy this episode. And thanks again for being here. Hey, Rachel, and welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. How great to have you here. Fiona, I'm so excited to be here. You have no idea. This is so wonderful. So you and I have connected fairly recently after you came across my eyeballs uh, and in my ears, I think probably in a roundabout way, I suppose, as comes through Facebook and groups and listservs and so forth, because you have had an incredible paper published very, very recently. So first of all, woohoo, congratulations Yay, on your paper thank being you published. So, much. so cool. Yay. So just this week, you had a paper entitled Intuitive Eating and Health at Every Size in Community Settings, Dietitians' Perspectives of Practice Barriers. And this was published in the Journal of Critical Dietetics, which, by the way, if there's any dietitians or not dietitians listening, this is an amazing journal, which is fantastic, interesting, fascinating, and I believe pretty critical reading. So, just to get us started, tell us a little bit about the roadmap, like what led to the paper actually being published in the first place? Yeah, so I've been working as a community dietitian myself since my internship was over. It was my dream job. I just knew right away I went straight from internship into this job. And part of my job, they sponsor you to get your master's degree, the union does. And so I'm getting my master's degree and I'm wondering, well, how am I going to you know, make this a learning experience because I know most of this stuff already, you know, almost everyone else there wasn't a dietitian yet, hadn't had the real world kind of experience. So I'm sitting there wondering what I'm going to do and, and they make you do a thesis or an exam at the end. So I chose a thesis and I was already really deeply into the world of intuitive eating and health at every size. And I thought, well, this would be a great topic to do for my thesis because I'm feeling very alone. You know, I'm doing this particular type of counseling in a setting that doesn't get a lot of light shown on it. Um, going to all these trainings and, you know, they're geared towards private practice. So I often mm -hmm. feel lost or I'll ask questions and the feedback I get is, well, just try X, Y, and Z. And I'm thinking that wouldn't work in my patient population. That's not appropriate for this. Um, so I thought, well, surely other dietitians must be feeling this way. And it would be great if I could figure out what exactly they're feeling or start to figure out what exactly they're feeling. So that way, if I want to, or if any Anyone else wants to, we can formulate trainings that specifically hit on what dietitians are saying are their problems in this particular sphere. Um, and we wanted to make it really a, a wide scope or a bigger scope, but it was just me like derping around on my computer at home. So we had to keep it, we had to keep it pretty narrow, but hopefully it serves as a nice foundation. So it really just started as my master's thesis. And then I had such a wonderful advisor and then such wonderful reviewers outside of the institution that really encouraged me to publish. So we worked on publishing it, um, Dr. Melissa Fuster and Dr. Paula Quattrimoni. So I have to give them a shout out because they were instrumental in helping me with this. Oh, it makes such a difference to have great teachers and supervisors around you. 
totally. Oh, they were just so life-changing. It was such a cool experience and I've never done any research before. So it was really cool to see how it works and go through the process myself, even though I definitely cried like multiple times <laughs> trying, to, <laughs> trying to figure it out. <laughs> Right. And I'm guessing, I could be wrong, but I'm guessing that after taking a single breath since this paper has been published, that various people have been saying, um, so when's the PhD? <laughs> you know, that's so funny. Not yet. But I have been asked before, before the paper was out, when I would get my PhD. And, you know, if my union wants to pay for it again. I'm not <laughs> yeah. going to argue, but I think maybe I need many years away, <laughs> away to breathe and to, to sort of regroup because going to school full time and working full time was really not Oof. something I would recommend for anybody that needs like a 30 year old's amount of sleep. And like, <laughs> you know, like I'm just not, I'm not 21 anymore in college <laughs> able to to do it right right oh my gosh that's so understandable let alone I mean sleep and life as well yeah <laughs> <laughs> that too my gosh so I really really enjoyed this paper and um, for anybody listening it's going to be um, you know we will attach it in in the show notes it's very easy to find but the paper discusses dietitians reports of the specific perceived barriers to the use of intuitive eating and health at every size. It was really interesting. And what it outlined was three specific uh, perceived barriers. So I'm going to read them out all together. And then if it feels okay, can we go through them one by one? Yeah, that would be great. Let's do it. Okay, awesome. So the three perceived barriers to the use of intuitive eating and health at every size were one, diet culture, which was often expressed as inconsistent messages patients receive from the media and other professionals that conflict with nutrition providers' messages. Two, legislative restrictions and weight-centric administrative policies. And three, personal beliefs of clients and colleagues concerning weight and health. All right. So each of those is an episode on its own, but that's yeah. okay. <laughs> that's okay. We can, we can do this. We can do this. Um, let's start at the top. So diet culture and inconsistent messaging. So tell us a little bit about this one as being a, a perceived barrier. Yeah, so this one was interesting and, and tough to parse out. You know, we did a lot of coding together, me and my advisors, to figure out, well, how do we really make these themes separate enough to talk about them? Because diet culture could have been in every single one of these themes, especially personal beliefs. And, you know, how do we separate this? So this one really showed up for folks more on a grand scale. It was more of a, a systemic barrier than an individual. That's how I separated them first, systemic and, and individual barriers. Um, and so this one showed up, you know, dietitians would mention, well, every time I try to introduce these concepts to my patients, you know, it's the only person they've ever heard this from before. And that made it really hard, right? Not just every magazine they pass or every single thing they hear on, on TV or the radio or their friends or their family, but also because that's so prevalent, doctors were giving them advice that was directly opposed to what the dietitian was trying to share. Mm -hmm. And so they were really finding it so tough to even broach the subject with patients because it was just, this was the only time anyone had said it. And if that's not the message you're used to hearing, it's really hard to trust that that's 
something you can listen to or something that's worthy of your pursuit. And so that was something that they really uh, more, almost, I think more than half of the participants cited that right away. You know, there's just so many conflicting messages all around because of diet culture in the grand scheme of things that my voice gets really drowned out and I feel like I'm fighting it alone. Yeah, that, that one's really understandable, isn't it? Because um, for people who are hearing it for the first time, you know, that will be reminiscent of our experiences of hearing uh, concepts of health at every size and weight-inclusive care for the first time ourselves as well. You know, we too, many of us, most of us, almost all of us, have grown up in a culture which ascribes value and worthiness to particular behaviours and body sizes and BMI mm-hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. And it can take a long uh, a long length of time for, for unlearning as well as then, you know, yeah. building up new learnings as well. So it's un- unsurprising that this is really felt felt by dietitians to be one of the main barriers. Yeah, that makes sense. Sure. And I think it's not so separate maybe from barriers that anybody in the profession is feeling, maybe not specific to community health or public health, but I think because it's so as the dietitian in these settings, you're kind of the lone voice, you know, the inconsistent messages are not just coming from media, but they're coming also from the rest of the care team. And so Mm. you're getting, you know, inconsistent messaging in the same place where you get your medical care. And that's confusing. It's hard to unlearn. Mm, It is for sure. And I think it also could be said that within a medical care team, that there is a certain hierarchy that exists there too. And Mm. although it hurts my heart every time I say it or even think it, dietitians don't necessarily enjoy a position high up on that ladder. So it can be kind of tricky to, you know, to, to acknowledge that, you know, our degree of perhaps influence is not the same as the physician or the doctor or, you know, um, another specialist in the, in the practice. Sure. And I think, you know, in a community setting, that's more true than when you do it on your own or you're an entrepreneur or even working at someone else's private practice where you're really the expert someone's seeking out, you know, no one even, at least at my job, almost no one even knows that I'm there until the doctor refers them to see me or they're forced to see me, you know? So it's it's not necessarily that someone's seeking you out for that expertise. There is definitely that hierarchy when you're sort of already in an institution. Mm, yeah. Okay. So that's a really, really interesting one. Let's move on to number two, which was legislative and administration policies. And this is a really, really interesting one because, again, it's another um, organizational on the organizational level, I guess, um, but then also systemic as well. Um, oof. Yeah. I feel this one. I can, I definitely see this one all over the place. So, so tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, so this one was very specific to this setting, I think, and and maybe not applicable elsewhere, which I loved hearing about, because that's what we were after, you know, what about this setting is making it so tough, and folks were mentioning, you know, even myself included, I work at a place where, you know, if we're billing Medicare, Medicaid, we're required to take a weight at every visit, we're required to bill for BMI, required, there's no choice, Mm -hmm. you know, even the doctors are required to address it if someone's BMI flags, you know, in a category above, quote, unquote, 
normal. They're mm-hmm. required by the state to go through a whole education about weight loss. Um, and some doctors, you know, will sort of fudge around it and 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 do kind of what I do, which is ignore it and and you know say <laughs> something else entirely. But we're required to do that. And then beyond just on an individual level in the community setting, folks in public health were mentioning, well, I'm you know, I work for SNAP or I work for WIC or I work for X, Y, and Z governmental agency, and I have to provide education within these government programs that are largely funded by and influenced by weight-centric research and and weight-centric policy, you know, this quote-unquote like war on obesity. I hate to even say the phrase, but you know, this is what's informing the programming. And, you know, one dietitian even mentioned to me, we just uh, ignore it. And we're constantly given citations that we're going against the SNAP requirements. We're constantly told that our programs like aren't falling within what's allowed and that we have to change them. So they're just sort of doing it anyway, because they're so passionate about it, but they're constantly getting demerits or whatever form it comes in from the state. And that can affect funding, Mm. you know, for the programs that you have. So a lot of these sort of institutional, there's a, a lot of interplay here with, well, what research is the government using to make programs and how closely do you have to fit into what the requirement is some of these programs hadn't been updated since the 90s and we know nutrition science changes every day and is often really inconclusive i mean it's so new in the scheme of things what we learned like yesterday might not even be true today but these dietitians were mentioning you know they have to be really evidence-based and no one has presented new evidence in a way that has convinced anybody to to change up the programming. There's just not funding for that, or there isn't attention or interest in that. That's actually really, really interesting. A couple of things really popped up for me when you were talking there. The first is how we define evidence-based. And Mm. this is one of the, you know, one of the topics that becomes like the catch cry of healthcare is has to be evidence-based, blah, 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 you know, this blustering and posturing. And what I find really interesting is to really remind myself and on a podcast, everybody listening, of course, because this is an enormous privilege to have this, you know, platform for us to be speaking on, is to remind myself and each other that evidence-based practice has three aspects to it. It's not just about what's in the research. And let's just pause here for a moment to say that what's available in the research is really quite limited in terms of what we understand about the broad sector of human beings. You know, Mm -hmm. often within a particular um, research question, there has been only specific groups studied which is not necessarily applicable or translatable across human beings or even across age groups, for example. So there is available evidence, you know, and as you said, you pointed back to, well, you know, if we've got evidence from the 90s, like that's all well and good and some of that can be useful. Like sometimes time doesn't change much, but often it does. And, um, you know, having more recent research is really important. And then, of course, there is clinician skill and our capacity to be able to translate available res- available uh, research and, um, and literature into uh, the, the, the person or the group or the community that we're working with. So there's skillfulness there. 
And the third thing is um, patient and client and community values, what, what they think is really important, you know. And so anyway, I just, I know I, I I know I get a little bit up on the on the soapbox with this, but um, you know when when it gets screamed at us, evidence based, evidence based. I think to myself, whoa, 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 pause, yeah, pause. Let's just can we can we first of all start from a place of identifying and acknowledging what evidence based practice actually is, rather than screaming literature literature at us all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, not even to mention that a lot of the literature is already predicated on the idea that weight is bad, right? Weight gain is bad, higher weight is bad. So we get these studies where there are quote unquote conclusions drawn, but the, the paper starts out by saying, well, we all know that, you know, obesity, quote unquote, obesity is bad for us. So because of that, we did this study and here's what we discovered. It's like, wait a minute, we didn't, We didn't unpack any of that. You just assumed that that (laughs) was true and then built your whole study on it. So then we have 20, 40 years of studies built on this assumption that maybe was never explored in the way that it should have been. But it's funny that you mentioned um, the idea of community values and what's important to the actual folks that we're serving. Uh, Some of the dietitians studied mentioned that like, hey, we're noticing that people care about X, Y, and Z at this base level, right? Access or, you know, the types of foods that are central to a culture that's being celebrated. But these programs are coming from the top down, giving nutrition advice and not focusing on any of the bottom up stuff like Ellen Satter's food pyramid, where you need consistent access to food before you can even think about enjoying food. Um, but there's still this sort of top down intervention as opposed to bottom up intervention. And we're really missing the mark there. And then we're required to sort of fit in this missed mark kind of area and and we're watching it not do so great and Mm -hmm. we want to do better and so I guess you know that's why a lot almost every dietitian I spoke to was like oh I just do what I want anyway and I face the consequences (laughs) right 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 so, so you end up with a with a group of dietitians who um, go a little bit rogue. Perhaps they have the personality types, maybe, to be a little bit oriented in that way, which I find very exciting personally. Um, but, but with that in mind, the second thing I was thinking about when you were um, talking through the uh, organisational and, and systemic barriers around legislation um, and organisation is um, how this potentially impacts um, feelings of workplace competence and also um, burnout. So mm-hmm. I would be curious to, I mean, even just hear about your observations, I guess. I mean, that you know, just in your experience, you know, what do you, what, what impact do you think this has on workplace well-being, I guess, and personal well-being? Yeah, we we didn't assess burnout so much in the study as we did ask about, you know, how they felt about their colleagues and how their colleagues viewed them and what kind of level of respect or autonomy we had, which we'll sort of get to later. Um, but even just anecdotally for me, I know working in a community setting while it is like my joy in life and the thing I've always wanted to do, it it is really hard to not burn out, you know, especially not just the administrative demands of working in community where you don't get to set your own hours, you don't get to set how many clients you see, it's just nonstop back to back. And, you know, there's a, a lot of 
trauma in the populations that we're serving. There's just a lot of barriers and that's tough. But then on top of that, you're the only one sort of pioneering this message and you're getting pushback from your colleagues and you're getting pushback from maybe the patients themselves, which is understandable. And you're getting pushback from other members of the team or the government. You know, it's really hard to fight all of those battles all the time, especially when you're working in a setting that tends to make the least amount of money out of any dietitian, you know, out of, out of any sort of setting for dietitians when we already are not paid really commensurate to our worth. Yeah, you raised some really good points there around um, how we can both um, sustain our own energy in uh, an area of, of work and life that we feel really passionate about um, and and also be thoughtful about how we take care of ourselves. My gosh. And like that, I, I don't know about you, Rachel. I mean, you came through dietetics probably 10, 12, 15 years after me, but um, there was no unit called taking care of yourself and, you know, um, observe your own nervous system. You know, (laughs) know, this this is something that we, we learn as we go. It's like, what's this feeling that I have? Oh, why am I not sleeping properly? (laughs) Yeah. And I would say like burnout's honestly encouraged, I think, in the profession, Mm -hmm. at least in, in my schooling, while it was awesome, you know, dietitians are sort of stereotypically type A, right? And that's celebrated and only 50% or less or, or fewer are going to get into an internship because there's limited spaces. And now there's going to be this requirement for a master's coming up. And there, you know, there's just a lot of emphasis placed on academic rigor and doing so many extracurriculars, even just as you're training. And it's sort of seen as a point of pride. And when you're already the type of person that's very type A, which many dietitians, you know, identify with, that sort of motivates you to just work, 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 and never take any breaks. And you're rewarded by getting an internship. You're rewarded by you know, getting a job or whatever sort of we're told at the end that we're working for all this time. Yeah. So it feels as though, you know, when people are studying at high school and then they get into, you know, college or university, because uh, I'm not 100% sure in the US, but in Australia, dietetics is very difficult to get into. And so the marks, the academic results that are required to actually get into dietetics does require a a significant degree of um, effort and labor you know time and also a a specific degree of um, literacy and um, and privilege as well in terms of time um, and effort required and investment Um, and then while you're in the course like you say there that that kind of drive or that the part of your nervous system that's required to really keep your pedal on the gas is still very much alive there and then so what you're describing is that then leaks into the workplace and we don't have uh we, we don't necessarily have a really sound capacity to develop you know the the, the break or the um or even the what's the one in the middle the clutch <laughs> You're talking to an American, so we only have the two because we're we're riding uh, we're riding automatic. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So so yeah, clutch is like pause, whereas brake is slow down. Um, 
Yeah, so there you go. You're welcome. So of course person. we don't have a clutch because American culture is very uh, anti-rest, you know, so. Uh, anti-pause. Yeah. yeah, we're anti-pause. We just took it straight out of there. That is so interesting. Do you know, I've been to the States many times. It didn't, um, it didn't click for me that there was no, um, that, that there was no clutch. You didn't have that manual some people uh do drive manual and stick uh-huh. still but most of us I'm, I mean look I can't speak for everybody but I know that many Americans are very used to automatic transmission and so oh, okay that's a foreign concept got for it. Us, at least yeah. in practice got it <laughs> okay so we are far off track here but th- that was very fun. <laughs> that was very very fun all right so um number three personal beliefs of clients and colleagues concerning weight and health so this is an interesting one and you did mention before that it has some connection with number one which was diet culture so do you mind um stepping us through this this one Sure. Yeah. So this one, we decided to still separate it, even though it's definitely a product of diet culture in the general sort of systemic sphere. Of course, it's going to influence how clients are thinking about themselves and how providers are thinking about things. We wanted to separate it because what folks were mentioning um, in their responses were that they would introduce these concepts to a client and the client themselves would not have much buy-in because of the influence of diet culture or their own sort of beliefs about weight and and what health was. So there was a lot of pushback actually from from client-facing pushback, and then a lot of pushback from providers just on an individual level, separate from sort of the messaging they have to give through their work, just, you know, a lot of diet culture in the office, a lot of diet culture just kind of around, you know, people talking about their own weight, about their own dietary habits. So just, you know, folks sort of their their personal belief and how that impacted the patient care that they were giving, and then, and then clients' beliefs and how that impacted their readiness maybe to hear something different and that was an area where most respondents said they faced a ton of pushback very interesting so before we pressed record you and I were talking about um, setting foundations of safety and how across the board regardless of whether you're working clinically or private practice or um, community that this is ne- not necessarily something that well it's it, it, it's almost definitely something that we haven't um, been exposed to in our training but that setting a foundation of safety remembering that you know one point you made when we were discussing this before is that for many people that safety is a seeking of a smaller body or a seeking of weight loss. And so us pushing our agenda around stepping away from that can actually be doing the opposite to what we are aiming to provide for people. And that is an avenue to be able to come back to themselves and to be able to develop that that kind of trusting collaborative relationship with themselves and their bodies. So I'm I was super curious about your thoughts on that because, you know, you you, you referred to um, Lindo Bacon's book, um, Radical Belonging, which is just incredible, highly recommend. Um, yeah, so, so what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I struggle with this one a lot because 
I find especially how it's evolved, how intuitive eating has sort of evolved and, and this, the haze space has evolved. I find that there's a very thin line between, hey, this has the potential to, to reduce medical stigma and to reduce weight-based stigma that maybe has its foundations in racism, you know, and, and to sort of make it easier for folks to enjoy their culture and their heritage and what their natural body size is. Maybe this is the potential, but I think there's also a very fine line there between maybe a little shade of, of white saviorism almost. And in community settings, I think that's a very important nuance that we didn't have the scope to dive into in this paper, but is always kind of in the back of my mind of, you know, it's not really up to me to come in and say, this is the best way, because like we were saying, it may not be the best way. If we can't change the systems fast enough for someone to feel that safety that they need or to get what they need out of the medical system, right? Like a surgery or something that they're being barred from because of their weight, uh, you know, it's not, maybe it's not in their best interest for me to, to push this. And that wasn't really something that we, parsed out that much in, in personal beliefs, but that I always think I'm trying to be very cognizant of just because at least in the US, the dietetics profession is overwhelmingly white. And if you're an entry level dietitian, which most community dietitians kind of end up being because it's such a low paying part of the field, you know, we have to be really, really careful that we're not just these thin, young, white, female dietitians who are coming into settings where overwhelmingly the client base tends to not be what we're representing just because of all of the systemic, you know, racism that has that has led to that need that's there. You know, we have to be really careful that we're not just, like you said, pushing this agenda when it's maybe not warranted or, or not seen as the way to help the most. And, and I don't know if I've figured out a great way to feel better about this yet, except to sort of check myself very often <laughs> and get a lot of trauma-informed training and, and a lot of training in harm reduction and just making sure that at the very baseline, I can help with access to care and access to resources. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this is a really sort of a tense and also important thing to think about that I would love to see in future research that piggybacked off of this. I would love to get a perspective on that that I wasn't able to, to flesh out here. Yeah, I think what you point to there are some really important points, really. And the first is, you know, ongoing work, self-interrogative self work, also more collective work within our profession to continuing to have conversations where together we can support each other to continue to question um, and, and hold each other to account in a way that further, furthers all of us, you know, in our work with people who don't share our identity, for example, and that we've, you know, we've learned a particular way of doing things and then we've done all this unlearning and then it's like, oh, I need to keep going with the unlearning and the learning. Yep, yep, yep. So the continued um, interrogation with kindness is going to be a compulsory part of this moving forward. And I think, you know, what, what you and I really spoke about a lot before we pressed record and now we're kind of looping back on now is ensuring, you know, that baseline, that foundation of um, safety, belonging, trust. Like what, do, what does that actually mean? Before we get to the the upper echelons of um, 
um, what might that mean in a little bit more of a uh, a little bit more of an advanced way, I guess, rather than you know getting our base needs ticked off first. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think there's probably a flavor of that in this personal beliefs section, you know, where I'm feeling the dietitians feeling frustrated that clients are not as open as they thought they might be. And then Mm -hmm. wondering, you know, well, you know, what's going on underneath there and what else can we explore in that area? Yeah, that's so true. Oof, so much to talk about with that for sure. And, and these are going to be ongoing conversations, which is actually really exciting and I think can only really progress us both individually and collectively. So thank you so much for, for going there with me. I think that's really cool. Sure. So interestingly and perhaps unsurprisingly, the paper also talks about dietitians reporting occupational autonomy as a primary factor facilitating the use of intuitive eating and health at every size in community practice and identified the need for shifts in attitudes about weight and its relation to health achieved through research and dissemination of information on weight-inclusive practices. Okay, so although this might be unsurprising to many of us, um, I'm curious to hear a little bit about what you envisage the, the kind of the, the practical steps are forward um, here for for our not only for our profession but also for broader broader healthcare communities. And I just want to apologise because I know this is a big question. I'm I'm kind of <laughs> ask, asking you to like envision the way forward. But you know what? You, you've got the you've got the mic. You've got the podium. I would love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> yes, here I am. I'm ready. So. Uh... You know, it was interesting what we discovered. We did barriers and then facilitating factors. What What's stopping you? What's helping you? And the only facilitating factor that was real, that wasn't a, I hope this happens, or I envision this helping, the only thing that was really tangible was autonomy mm-hmm. at their jobs. Um, and I see this anecdotally with myself, which is one of the, the things I was least surprised by in my results was, you know, I have very little clinical oversight at my job. My boss is wonderful. She doesn't micromanage anything. She trusts us. So I get to really use haze and intuitive eating in my work without pushback, really. And she supports me talking to, to doctors. But most community dietitians, we're kind of lower on the totem pole, right? It's often an entry level job and we're kind of a cog in the wheel and there's not maybe that autonomy to do what you'd like to do. You're hemmed in by what your manager needs you to do or what the government is requiring you to do. And so the more autonomy you had, at your job, the more you were able to kind of do this unbridled and you're able to, you know, really affect more change in that way. So this was the only sort of non-future based sort of uh, facilitating factor. The other ones were, I hope this happens. I'm excited to see this start to happen. And this, we, we talked a little bit about it in the paper, but it really follows the diffusion of innovation theory where there's, you know, people in the beginning who are sort of early adopters, they're gung-ho, they're the people screaming about it all the time. And everyone else thinks they're like really just shouting into the void. And uh, then the more people hear about the messaging, which I think we're starting to see now in the haze and intuitive eating spheres is that it's starting to catch on in in areas where it might have been seen as really radical before. Um, it's starting, I mean, we can tell it is because it's getting co-opted all the time now. Ooh, yes. you know? <laughs> so we can tell it's really catching. And so I think what I see this looking like, it's going to have to be really multifaceted, right? dietitians 
are going to need exposure to it early on in their undergrad. Um, maybe even, you know, in their internship in their undergrad, they're going to need exposure. Doctors and other clinicians are going to need exposure so that they've heard of this before we're shouting at them, <laughs> before it's really vital to patient care. We need that included in training. We need weight stigma training included in all medical providers' care. Um, so shifts there. Then we need to think about, you know, dietitians need to get paid more. If a dietitian is going to stay in a community setting past the two, three year mark, that person is going to need to make more money so they can have a sustainable life and still provide care in that setting. They can't burn out. We need, you know, we need a higher salary. What we're discovering is they probably have less autonomy because it's entry level. Most of these jobs are entry level and, and get paid very little. So then you can't invest in continuing education, right? These are expensive. So we need dietitians to get paid. We need much more focus on diversifying the field because how are we going to get these important perspectives in a really tangible and actionable way if the profession remains 95% white? You know, we need organizations to make sure that that we're funding scholarships and we're, you know, making the, the path more accessible for, for diversity. Um, and I, I think too, we're probably going to need to see like a big cultural shift. And I think that's the one I'm starting to see maybe more than anything else, a big cultural shift towards this. But as that gains traction, I think it's just going to be a lot easier for folks to actually explore the nuances we're talking about because they won't feel like they just need someone to listen to them. You know, they'll actually be able to explore some of the finer things when they can get the training that they need and when they get the money that they need to take the training and when other people don't act like they're out of their minds when they say, hey, maybe it's not the best thing to starve this patient, <laughs> you know. So I think that's how I see it. I see it coming from education coming from, you know, making sure the field is more accessible um, and, you know, just watching as, as culture shifts so that you're not the first person mentioning it to someone. That, yeah, that, that's it exactly. Because on, on that last note, you know, if we are the first people mentioning it, whether it's to another dietitian, to one of our, um, our other health professional colleagues, nurses, doctors, physiotherapists, you know, speeches, whoever that is, um, let alone our patients and clients, you know, them not hearing it for the first time for us makes our job so much easier. My goodness, because they're like, oh, yeah, um, this is something I heard from the practice nurse or from my diabetes educator or from, you know, the doctor, you know, something that can provide us just with a soft place to land. Um, because, you know, to, to bring us back to the topic of burnout, then, you know, if we are constantly kind of, you know, foot on the gas pedal, it, it means that we are not going to last very long. Yeah, and that's the reality, I think, just even separate from this work in community settings, there's a ton of burnout, a ton of turnover, at least here. I know even anecdotally at my job, I'm like one of the employees that's been there the longest and I've only been there five years, yeah. you know, and I've mm. just watched provider after provider and it makes total sense. They're burnt mm -hmm. out. There's just not time to invest in these, the type of learning that you would need to really 
make this successful. Mm. So in terms of research, what would you like to see? And, and I am going to completely, completely leave you, Rachel, out of this picture. <laughs> but what would you like other people to be? Um, <laughs> how would you like for the research that you have done for this paper it to kind of grow legs from here? What would you like to see other people, you know, investigating and, um, you know, deepening the ideas that have already been um, established from your paper? Yeah, I would love to see the client perspective of this in community settings. Hey, when these messages are broached to you, does that meet a need? What does that feel like? What are the barriers you see? If your dietitian's suggesting this, what are the real barriers in your way? I was surprised that not that many dietitians in this study mentioned financial restriction and food insecurity. But I think we weren't asking, hey, what do your clients perceive as barriers? We were asking institutionally for you, what's a barrier? So I'd be interested because we know that you can't do intuitive eating unless you have enough food. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's not helpful to do this stuff unless there's access. So I'd be interested in the client perspective. I would be very interested in how do we actually adapt intuitive eating to a setting where there's limited time, there's limited resources, you know, there's maybe no follow-up or lack of follow-up, just the very realities the, the real realities of working in community health, you know, I maybe have 20 minutes with someone, it's the first time I'm ever meeting them, I have no intake beforehand, and I've got to hit X, Y, and Z, because they may never come back. And how do we really take these principles that can be super helpful and have this potential to be very freeing, how can we apply them when that's the case? Or how can we apply them when there's a language barrier? Or how can we apply them, you know, in, in all these different varieties of settings that we don't really get when we do the, albeit wonderful, the traditional training mm -hmm. for it. So I'd love to see actual applicable sort of studies that are looking at how you might implement it in these settings. And then I would really love to see a study that has a much more diverse respondent population. I mean, we tried really hard, uh, but the nature of the profession is that, you know, our sample size sort of represented the the population of dietitians and, and what the profession looks like right now. And so I think it would be really great to get more perspectives on barriers for folks who are coming maybe from communities that might identify as marginalized. So your, that's one thing I didn't ask you. So the participants in your research being dietitians, did that roughly reflect the broader um, spectrum of the way people show up? Yeah, I would say so. Mm. Um, you know, we only had about 27 respondents and, and it was a really voluntary study. You know, it was very much, hey, we're doing this study. If you want to get involved, here's a little survey you can take. If you want to pursue this, you can, I'm going to call you. So it was very just whoever wanted to respond. So I think there's some confirmation bias in there where, you know, the folks who are responding are the ones who are already screaming really loud about right, it. Right. So we're only getting the perspectives from the early adopters here. Um, but yeah, our sample size really really reflected sort of at least American dietetics as a whole, where it was mm. predominantly white women. Mm. Um, and it was, it was all folks who identified as, as women. And um, yeah, so I would love to see that sort of expanded on and, and done in other ways. 
So if there's anybody listening who this has piqued your interest, then Rachel's contact details will be in the show notes. (laughs) She will be so pleased to hear from you if you want to take her research and uh, extend it and expand it and deepen it and take it further because this is really an extraordinary piece of work. It's, It's really... I think what it's helped us do is to understand um, on the ground people's uh, dietitians, and as you say, there are definitely there is always limitations, isn't there, to, to every research? And um, you've done such a beautiful job of acknowledging that and and naming how you'd like to see it different in the future. Um, I'm just so grateful for your your time and effort and energy and the resources that you've not only poured into this research but also in being here with me today and sharing this you know when I um, heard you speaking about you know starting a community dietitians Facebook group which I would love you to talk about if that's okay and then I got wind of this research I was like I have to talk to Rachel I have to because this is such this is such important work that will undoubtedly kind of mark a place in time. So I hope you feel really proud. Wow. When you say it like that, oh my goodness. I mean, even, I think I would pee my pants if just even one person cited my name in their own research. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I definitely feel, I feel really proud. And I also feel very, I think, maybe even more so than before, hyper aware of the fact that, you know, I would like my research to be a springboard for folks who maybe represent the communities that we're serving in community settings a little bit more often. So I'm, I'm very acutely aware that as a, as a white dietitian, like my voice is a a drop in many that doesn't need to maybe be the most amplified in the room. So while I'm really excited, you know, I'm also hoping that my voice can maybe propel somebody else's voice and push that up higher so that there are voices in the room that don't look and sound just like mine. Oh, I love that. No, I think that's absolutely compulsory. Thanks for mentioning that. That's awesome. So we can be both proud of the work that we've done and also use our voices to really elevate those of others. I love that. Thank you. That's so cool. So tell us a bit, I know that um, very, very recently, only over the past couple of weeks, I think maybe, well, last month maximum, you've started a Facebook group for community dietitians to have these kind of conversations. So why don't you let people know where they can uh, find that group? Yeah, so I I asked folks in some of the other groups I'm in already, um, like yours, which I love, and um, Haley Goodrich is inspired to seek. You know, I just said, hey, would anybody be interested in a group specific to us? Because I see a lot of questions here that you know I'm answering, but maybe it would be cool if other folks knew about this and and were answering too. And and people said yes, so I just on a whim made a Facebook group, um, and it can be found uh, through my Facebook. I posted about it in all of the the sort of groups that I'm in already. So you can find it in your group. I made a post, Haley's group. I made a post um, and it's the Hazen intuitive eating like for community dietitians and and public health dietitians. Um, And it's, I'm going to start offering a group supervision through the Facebook group, just donation-based. There's like whatever you feel is reasonable to pay to get supervision, just so that if there's someone who really wants supervision in this area, if I have anything to offer, 
then I can offer it. And, you know, maybe there'll be guests that I can bring in that might have perspectives to offer that I don't have, but I just, I know what a barrier it is to get supervision sometimes, just Mm -hmm. a cost barrier, or Mm -hmm. perhaps there's maybe, you know, not as many supervisors that are experienced in community settings. So I'm hoping that through that group, people will be able to connect, but then also if they want to drop in for a donation-based group supervision, at least they'll have that option to to get a little bit of help and then me I will be trying to fight imposter syndrome all the time to to make sure I can actually help people and to keep reminding myself that I do actually know what I'm doing yes well I can (laughs) confirm that you do absolutely know what you're doing and ironically I think none of us exactly know what we're doing yeah (laughs) do you know I think you know, I, I speak to uh, dietitians, you know, my supervisees, uh, you know, d- dietitians coming through a little earlier in the system now. And I often will say, when I say to you, like, none of us exactly know what we're doing, do you feel, does that make you feel anxious or does that make you feel relieved? And it's really interesting. Um, and the second, the second part of that is, and uh, what can we learn from that? Because if that makes you feel anxious, how can we understand about that particular response? If that makes you feel relieved, welcome to my club. And I <laughs> see you because for me, it, it's, it's not a, it's not a letting off the hook relieved. It's a, oh, right. I, yeah, the, I just, I feel a sense of um, ease in Oh, okay. So all of the issues and the systemic problems um, and oppression that exist right now are probably not going to be solved in my lifetime. Are, are people, is the world going to be free of eating disorders in my lifetime? I, no, I, I, no, it's, it, it's not. Do I wish that it was? Sure. Absolutely. Can we still make a meaningful contribution? Yes. Yes, we can. So that being said, I am incredibly grateful to you, Rachel, for spending your time with me today. Um, I am super excited for you and for where this is going to lead. I am thrilled to connect and so happy to be able to introduce your research, hopefully to lots of other people who I'm sure will be equally as excited as I am. So um, where can people find you? Ah, so I am pretty bad at social media, but I'm trying really hard. So <laughs> you can find me there. I'm on Facebook as, as myself, Rachel Larkey. I'm on Instagram as Rachel Larkey RD. You can find me there and I promise I'll start posting things more regularly. I just, just haven't gotten it together yet. Um, and then my website is rachelarkeyrd.com and the supervision group is on there too. Um, and then on you know, on my page, you can find the Facebook group for community dietitians. So if you're out there and you feel alone, you aren't, come find us. That was the most exciting part of this study was being like, wow, there's at least 27 of us. At <laughs> least, at least. At least, yeah. <laughs> so you can find me there. Um, if anybody uh, needs to find me um, on the intuitive eating sort of provider list, like the counselor directory, I'm on there with information about how also to reach me at the clinic where I work as well. Oh, that's so wonderful. Well, thank you again so much. I am so excited for you and for our community. This is definitely going to mark a space in time for sure, where Uh, you know, future tentacles of community-based work where all bodies can be regarded with respect and care is going to be, um, you know, um, investigated further and where we can, you know, really dig in and, and do the work required. 
Wow. Thank you so much for having me. I can't tell you the fangirling that went on when you, <laughs> when you messaged me, this is just, uh, just a dream come true. I'm so excited to, to be talking to you. Well, I'll tell you this. I put my pants on one leg at a time. How's that? <laughs> I mean, look, you're putting pants on. That's I, like more than most of us can say. I know, that. right? I know. <laughs> yeah. Winning, winning at life, life goals. <laughs> Um, Rachel, thank you so much again. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Fiona. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.